Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. This is our last one for 2012. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. Uh, today, our topic is care of the young horse, and we're sponsored by Merck Animal Health. We're joined tonight by Dr. Alan Ruggles, who's a surgeon at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome, Dr. Ruggles. Thank you very much. Uh, and also, we're joined by Dr. Cynthia McKenzie of Merck Animal Health. Welcome, Dr. McKenzie. Thanks for having me. And so, Dr. Ruggles, can you start out by telling us a little bit about your area of expertise? Um, sure, Michelle. I, I work in a, a hospital in Central Kentucky, which is the um, you know prime area for breeding of uh, thoroughbred horses. Although, you know, in in Kentucky, we have lots of different breeds that that come to our hospital, and and I um, chiefly um, work with uh, lameness and then orthopedic problems such as angular deformities or joint issues, and do arthroscopy and fracture repair. So those kind of um, orthopedic problems and solutions in horses. And so you see quite a few young horses, I'm guessing. We see lots of young horses and lots of older horses, but uh, you know all shapes and sizes. Okay. And Dr. McKenzie, can you tell us a little bit about your role with Merck Animal Health? Yeah, so I'm in technical services, which means I interface with veterinarians and horse owners and veterinary technicians and, and vet students um, about our products and help them um, answer technical questions that, that they might have and um, um, provide continuing education to, to all of that group. And you have quite a bit of experience with young horses as well. Yeah, I actually worked at Rudin Riddle with Dr. Ruggles um, when I first came out of veterinary school and worked there. I did um, a lot of orthopedic work, and I from then worked at uh, Lone Bend Farm there in central Kentucky and was responsible for the herd health and management of about 600 head of horses, including including all the foals. So, yeah, kind of a broad range um, practice and did a lot of um, herd health and management and biosecurity and breeding shed, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know, young horses are so much fun, but they're also a lot of worry. (laughs) You want to get them all grown up. Uh, safe and healthy. And so tonight we're going to be addressing the audience questions uh, about caring for young horses. We received um, hundreds of questions on this topic. As always, uh, we ask everyone who's listening live to be patient before you start sending in your questions. Um, You should be able to send those from your console. Um, Just email those into us. That is on the right-hand side of your page that you have open right now. Give us about 15 minutes so we can get dig into the questions we already have lined up, um, but we are happy to take take your questions. We have about an hour tonight, so we're going to go ahead and get started. And I'm going to start with a question for you, uh, Dr. McKenzie, and it's from Jenny in California. And Jenny wants to know about your recommendations for vaccinating young horses. Um, what what suggestions do you have on vaccinating foals and young horses? Yeah, so vaccination is a critical component of um, protecting against any disease. But for the youngsters, vaccination plays an even bigger role because the vaccines are helping to develop the young horse's immune system and the memory of the immune system. So in this way, vaccination helps the immune system build protective responses to future challenges by infectious pathogens. So it's really critical that we... Um, administer the vaccinations to these youngsters very carefully. So if you think about when a foal is born, they acquire early disease protection through their vaccinated dams But eventually those maternal antibodies decline and the foal needs the added protection that develops following proper immunization. So timing is definitely critical. The maternal drives um, cholesterol antibodies that provide that foal with the temporary protection are the same antibodies that prevent the foal from mounting an acceptable immune response to vaccines that are administered too early. So working with your veterinarian to develop a customized vaccination schedule that takes into account your particular region of the country, endemic diseases on your farm or your ranch, and your foal's particular risk 
of disease exposure are really critical. Some risk factors to consider include how many other mares and foals are on on the property that that foal is going to come in contact with the first year of life, um, whether your foal will remain on your farm or travel to other locations with his dam, um, and then preventing disease through a strategic vaccination program is always the safest, um, easiest, and most economical way um, than having to, to treat the foal. So I'm just looking at a very basic uh, vaccination program Foals can, can start receiving vaccines at around four to six months of age. And a good resource to go to is Merck Animal Health Foal Care website, and that's foalcare.com, or the American Association of Equine Practitioners website, which is AP.org. They have vaccination guidelines on there that can help you and your veterinarian um, develop a a good vaccination protocol for your for your foal. But again, beginning at about four to six months of age, foals need three dose series for most of the diseases that we vaccinate against. So, Dr. McKenzie, I, it always seems like uh, baby horses are kind of like uh, little kids, and they always have a runny nose of some sort. What kind of diseases are we trying to protect our our young horses from? Yeah, so that's a great analogy, and I use that a lot when I'm when I'm talking to horse owners. It's the same scenario is going into you know an infant daycare situation, and they're trying to develop their immune system just like little children are. So infectious um, upper respiratory disease is always the number one um, culprit, and so we're talking about influenza. Um, uh, rhinomeningitis, um, the, the equine herpes viruses, um, those are the ones that we're, we're battling. When it comes to influenza, it's really critical um, that you wait until the foal is about six months of age because of that those cholesterol um, antibodies from the mare to vaccinate um, your foal. Now, when it comes to the, the rhinomeningitis or herpes viruses, um, they're those foals are probably going to be latently infected as early as two to three months of age. So the goal in vaccinating against um, equine herpes virus is to keep a lid on, on the disease because most horses are already going to be latently infected, including foals. Okay. Well, thank you. And so our next question, we're going to switch gears uh, quite a bit. And Dr. Ruggles, I'm going to give this question to you. We received uh, dozens of questions about when can I start working my young horse? When can I start putting them under saddle? And I have a question from Aurora in Mesa, Arizona, who has a half Arab, half quarter horse, who the horse looks more like an Arab or seems more like an Arabian than a quarter horse. She's thinking of starting the horse at four um, and wants to know if she should talk to her vet first. We have Jane, who is in Santa Cruz, California. Um, she wants to know when is her horse going to reach its full height and be full size and be an adult horse and be ready to ride. And then also we have Anita in Florida who has a fine boned Welsh quarter horse cross. And same question, when is the horse going to be ready to carry a rider? What, what recommendations do you have, Dr. Ruggles? Well, um, you know, three different breeds, three different areas, uh, probably three different disciplines. So, there, there's probably going to be three different answers, but mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it's <clears throat> in in the in the kind of performance horse discipline. Certainly, um, three to four years of age is is should be adequate um, to start those horses. We know in in race breeds we start a little earlier, and and in fact, the, you know, the data doesn't really <clears throat> support that that's a problem. Quite honestly. Um, and, uh, you know, horses are, are a little, you know, they're not quite like people who make the analogies um, when we think they're, they're uh, you know, adolescents. Uh, you know, we try to get them a little older. But, but in fact, uh, three or four should be fine for all of these, um, all these breeds. I mean, if you have any, you know, questions or there's some confirmation issues, um, then certainly it's fair to have the horse evaluated. Um, 
by by um, by their veterinarian, as as was suggested, um, um, I think by Aurora, and um, uh, but but generally three to four, um, it, and they're not physically completely physically mature uh, at that point, and they're, and they're still going to be growing, and certainly a three-year-old warm blood looks different than a six-year-old warm blood, mm-hmm. uh, but for the but for the examples given, um, certainly by three. Uh, and no later than four, you should be able to do some work. And I think you just have to, uh, you know, play it by ear. You can't use the same training regime for all um, breeds and all horses, even within the same breed. And, uh, you know, some of them may need a little more uh, time. Um, one thing we do see when they're started under saddle is sometimes they may get some problems with their stifles, upward, such as upward fixation of the patella where, the, where their patella catches. And that has to do with... Um, essentially the strength of the quadriceps muscle, the, the thigh muscle. And so um, if you're having trouble in that way, you have to change the, the training. Maybe if you're overtraining them, back off or vice versa. So, you know, I think you have to, um, you know, use good common sense uh, for all these situations. But um, to answer the question, three or four should be uh, plenty skeletally mature uh, to start doing some work under saddle. Okay, yeah. And some of it might uh, depend on the horses, where the horses maturity wise mentally as well as as physical wouldn't you say <laughs> oh, and and the rider <laughs> and the rider <laughs> you know so uh, it goes hand in hand absolutely mm-hmm. um dr mckenzie we have a question for you from tanner in palm beach florida and so tanner's asking about colic and colic is the number one killer of our of our horses and tanner wants to know what is the most common cause of colic in a young horse and what can you do to prevent that and keep your horse healthy? So there's many conditions that can cause colic in, in the young horse, but the top two are parasites and ulcers. Those are the ones that are most frequently diagnosed in, in this age group. So I'm just going to address each, each one of those individually, first talking about the nasty parasites. So um, young horses' immune systems, immature immune systems, are more, make them more susceptible to parasitism than older horses. So we're talking about ascaribs, which are roundworms, tapeworms, and then thiaposomes, which are the small strongholds. So those are the three primary parasites that are going to cause colic. Um, so we know that heavy burdens of maturing ascarid larva in adults can cause small intestinal impaction and even bowel rupture um, with a secondary peritonitis. Um, and even recent deworming may precede colic, and, it, and that's also believed to... Um, be due to suddenly killing large numbers of these worms. So if you think that, that your bull has a heavy ascarid burden, um, you definitely want to speak to your veterinarian about administering the, the dewormer and possibly even pre-treating ahead of time with maybe some banamine and then tubing with some mineral oil and maybe even giving what we term a subtherapeutic dose of the dewormer um, so that it can be a little kinder, gentler to their system as they are trying to pass a lot of these worms. So adult tapeworms, they'll tend to cluster and attach to the mucosal lining of the distal small intestine and ileocecal valves. How these parasites know where they are in the intestinal tract, I just don't know. But they're smart little ones, and they go to the ileocecal junction, um, and they have been known to cause interceptions in foals and ileal impactions and some cases of spasmodic colic. Um, tapeworm eggs are certainly difficult to pick up on a fecal exam. So um, deworming with like a double dose of pyrantel or a dewormer that, can't, that contains quasi-quantile, those are the two um, treatment options for tapeworms. So then the last um, parasite is the insisted small strongyles, or what we term thiapostomes. Those can cause colic, weight loss, and diarrhea, um, and especially when they try to exist from the lining of the large intestine. So um, the moral of the parasite story is to deworm and make sure that you're getting proper fecal examinations um, so that you know that the dewormers that you're giving um, are effective. So going over to the ulcer side, which is the second most common cause of um, colic in, in particularly younger foals, um, and those, those can develop either in the stomach, in the small intestine of the growing foal, and signs that you're going to see are diarrhea, loss of appetite, 
teeth grinding, rolling up on the back, kind of in a calf position, you know, this sort of low-grade colic, um, an increased amount of salivation, um, and many foals will become colicky shortly after nursing. So you just want to watch out for those particular signs, and in, in severe cases, you might even see blood in the, in the stool. So there can be ulceration of the, of the small intestine that results in a narrowing of the intestines, as they also begin to heal, and this structure formation can cause an obstruction. So um, your veterinarian can diagnose ulcers by clinical signs and, of course, examination by passing a gastroscope down into um, the stomach. But foals are the highest risk for, for, for ulcers, um, and there's different anti-ulcer medications that can be used. But... Foals develop ulcers just like people do, and it's in usually stressful environments and change in management. So trying to minimize the stress within a foal's environment can help minimize at least that form of colic. Yeah, and when you think about how many changes happen in a young horse's life, you can start to kind of identify a lot of those causes of stress between being weaned and having maybe a new owner or moving to a new place, you're going to shows. There's there's lots going on for these little guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So being really aware of what your your foal's normal is, so that when the abnormal kind of creeps up, you can intervene quickly. Okay. Well, we have another question for you, Dr. McKenzie, um, about foals again, and it's from Ellen Catherine in New Jersey, and she wants to know about how, when you have a mare who's protective of her foal, how can you go about making sure the foal is pri- is thriving? Yeah, so um, this, this question is, is interesting because in, in central Kentucky, from the time that foal hits the ground, there's people around it and around the foal and, and dealing with them. So um, I just kind of think about my history in the back, and, it, and, and then I think, well, there's probably other parts of, of the world where they don't mm-hmm. handle them. But it's, it's always, um, I think, a good idea to try to handle the Marin foal um, shortly after birth and get them accustomed to, to that handling. And a mare who's protective, um, I would suggest that you try um, having somebody else there to hold the mare so that you can examine the foal and do what you need to do to the foal in a very safe fashion. This can often be done at feeding time when the, when the mare's um, sort of distracted. But she can be trained within a, the first you know, few days to few weeks of doing this on a daily basis, the mare will come a, become accustomed and knows that the humans aren't going to be a threat. But there's a lot of um, things that a horse owner and a new foal owner should be looking for within the first few hours of the foal's life. A healthy newborn foal should be able to sit sternal with a suckle reflex within 10 to 20 minutes of delivery, should stand within one hour, and should be nursing within two hours. So if your foal is two weeks to stand or nurse, you should contact your veterinarian immediately. Um, early veterinary intervention can be life-saving for these newborn foals. So when it comes to the newborn, the wait-and-see approach is not what should be taken. So you want to err on the side of caution and call your, your veterinarian if your, your foal deviates from normal. And again, I refer horse owners to um, foalcare.com. There's a lot of great information on that website that can at least give you what the normal parameters are for a lot of these um, newborn values. So you want to make sure that the foal is going to be urinating within 8 to 10 hours of delivery, passing the first manure, which is the meconium, and, of course, getting up and nursing that very, very important um, colostrum. So um, the colostrum should be ingested in, in a quantity of half a liter to one liter um, within the first 8 to 12 hours of life to ensure that that foal is getting those really protective um, antibodies from mom. So you should observe your newborn foal frequently during the first few weeks of life to detect um, any signs of disease. And often the first sign of a sick foal is um, lethargy or sleeping more than usual. 
um, decreased nursing vigor accompanied by an overly distended udder. So it's just as important to look at the mare as it is the foal. Um, and then, of course, young foals run that risk of a variety of respiratory diseases and diarrhea. So it's really critical to monitor that young foal, and it just helps if you can be able to handle them um, to accomplish that task. Oh. And for everyone who's out there listening live right now who or who uh, might be checking out the archive later, we do have a foaling and neonate Acevet Live scheduled for January 31st. So if you're interested in, in the baby horses, definitely check that out the end of January. We're going to start out the new year talking about the, the little tiny babies. Um, so our next question, I'm going to uh, give to Dr. Ruggles, and it's from Terry in California. And Terry has a six-month-old quarter horse filly who, after running hard in the pasture, often has swollen hind fetlocks. She's wondering what could be causing this. Should she be worried? Um, well, she should, she should have him evaluated the, the, the foal. The um, um, swollen, swelling of the fetlocks, the, the kind of the important question would be whether the swelling involves the joint. Um, so it would be like a, a fluidy swelling, if you will, especially towards the front and the sides of the joint. And if it's fluid swelling within the joint, then it's possible there's a fragment within the joint, um, either from a, a chip fracture. Even as a young horse, they can um, uh, have pieces of bone chipped off the uh, first phalanx, which is a long pasture bone, or the could be developing osteochondrosis, which is a, a failure of the normal cartilage to develop bone. And um, they, uh, the the uh, hi, the hind fetlocks are, are a common location for osteochondrosis. Um, so if there is joint swelling, um, that might be one of the uh, possibilities. The other possibility is uh, epiphysitis, which is inflammation of the growth plate. Uh, that's usually a firm swelling. It's generally on the sides and usually towards the inside of the hind uh, cannon bones, just above the fetlock. So it would really be important to differentiate between those uh, conditions because they're handled differently. Um, certainly, um, uh, her veterinarian um, uh, may be able to tell uh, at least uh, what part is swollen by a physical exam for sure, and then radiographs are really definitive uh, to answer the question. And if there are fragments in the joint, uh, they may not have to be removed immediately, but uh, generally removal is um, by arthroscopic techniques is uh, curative um, and uh, if it's a uh, epiphysitis problem, it's usually a management uh, management issue, uh, uh, restraint uh, or confinement, let's say, until sound, and then uh, maybe uh, changing some of the feeding um, program. So uh, it really depends on what's going on. And, and while I'm thinking about it, as um, Dr. McKenzie was talking about ulcers, uh, one of the things to consider as risk factors for ulcers in young foals are orthopedic problems. So... Um, if a uh, foal develops a lameness or a weanling develops a lameness and is confined and so has a change in its habits um, or is a uh, change in the feed or, or how much it's grazing uh, or if it's given non-steroidal uh, medications which would include um, ketophen or phenylbutazone or, or flinixin or banamine that is, um, those are all risk factors for ulcers. So you just want to be aware of that and sometimes when we confine foals and change their routine, we'll put them on some... Uh, uh, pre uh, preventative uh, anti-ulcer medications. Okay, good, good information. And so it sounds like Terry might need to contact her vet to, to check out her baby. Yeah, you need to find out, you know, you can't treat something unless you know really what's going on and a, and a set of radiographs um, to determine it is cheap insurance to prevent a long-term problem. Yeah. And we have a question that's come in from our live audience. And Dr. McKenzie, I'm going to toss this over to you. Uh, it's from Lewis in Florida. And Lewis wants to know at what age should he castrate his colt? And what are the benefits of castration? The sooner the better. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, we only do it in the, in the yearling year. So, um um, sometime after they they cast their first birthday is is an appropriate time to cast to castrate them. So, okay, and and what are some of the benefits of of castration? Behavior. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think for for most people and and for this particular um, 
species, I mean, horses, we're, we're talking about behavior issues, and horses are, are large animals, and stallions have to be cared for in a totally different way and managed than, than most horses. It's, it's a very unusual stallion that can be managed alongside of, of other horses. So they present um, significant management um, issues as well as, as behavior issues because of that. So if you have no uh, desire or indication that you're going to, to breed that colt, then castrating him is going to make him into um, a, a very manageable horse that can can be housed in, in any um, barn type of setting alongside with um, other geldings as well as mares. So it, it makes it makes your life a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I every horse I've bred has been a colt. <laughs> And yelling is a good thing. <laughs> That's been my experience. Um, we have another question that's come in from the live audience, and it's Terry in, in Maryland uh, and Jimmy in Texas. Actually, there's two questions that are similar. Um, and I'm going to let uh, Dr. Ruggles and Dr. McKenzie decide who's going to answer this one. Uh, Terry and Jimmy are asking about their yearlings that have an overbite or parrot mouth. Should they be concerned about parrot mouth, and is there anything that they can do about about that? Um, I can go ahead, uh, Cynthia. The uh, uh, you know generally it's it's a, a concern of the uh, of 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 the owners and and the people around the horse rather than the horse. The uh, usually doesn't um, uh, lead to any difficulty in gaining weight or eating. Um, now, <clears throat> saying that, you, you will have to have some special care as far as uh, um, watching the incisors, which are the bones that we're talking about, because um, they they're not opposing each other. Uh, now, in a young horse, it's possible to retard the growth of the, um, of the maxilla, which is the upper jaw, which is growing too long in, in these um, guys, uh, by using uh, braces, essentially wires uh, that go around the teeth, uh, anchored to the back teeth, and then go to the um, incisors. So there's a, um, a way to prevent that. You, you have to be uh, cognizant of what the breed um, uh, issues are, whether it's, it's uh, appropriate in your breed. Um, and certainly you would be concerned about doing the, uh, any corrective surgery such as this in a horse that's meant to be uh, bred uh, because it's a, it's a trait that can be passed on. And um, so we wouldn't suggest... Um, doing this uh, procedure in, in horses meant for breeding, especially stallions. So, uh, yeah, there are things to do, but, but generally it's more of a, a management worry than it is for the horse. Okay. And Dr. McKenzie, do you have anything to add? I, I don't. Dr. Ruggles answered it beautifully. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> are, there, are there any issues with uh, parrot mouth horses and nutrition and mastication? Uh uh, not, not, not really. In fact, there's, a, there's a uh, disorder of young horses where they get a tumor of their maxilla, cause, call, or, or, uh, or the, um, um, or the rostral of the front of the mandible called ossifying fibroma, and we have to remove that um, portion of the mandible. It's a non-malignant tumor, and after removal, the horses are, are essentially normal, can be bitted and eat well. So, uh, you know, horses have evolved over millions of years and have great survival instinct and metabolism and, and a way. So um, uh, usually it's no big deal. Okay. Well, thanks. Um, I have a question for you, Dr. McKenzie, from Karen in California. And Karen wants to know about uh, how a stressful environment can affect a young horse. And we've talked about ulcers already, um, but she wants to know if there's any concern about Cushing's disease later in life being related to stress early in life. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, and and I, I don't think that we know that, that that early stress, whether it predisposes the horse to getting Cushing's later on in life. We know that about 15 to 20% of horses will develop Cushing's in their geriatric days, but what exactly predisposes them from early, we don't know. We know that there's some other things that can predispose them later in life, like being overweight, um, feeding them the um, wrong kinds of diets, but early in life we don't we don't necessarily have identified risk factors. So 
but, uh, but we already know that a stressful environment for a young bull can predispose them to some colic conditions. As far as their immune system um, during their youngster years, that can also um, put them in an immunocompromised state. If they're really, really stressed, then they're not going to properly mount um, an immune protective immune response when they are vaccinated because they're in this sort of immunocompromised state due to the stress. So they might not properly um, uh, respond to vaccinations, and then that could subsequently set them up for getting some upper respiratory infections or even mounting some secondary bacterial infections that could lead to pneumonia. So. Um, stress is definitely something that we want to try to minimize in the young in the young fall. Okay, um, and Cushing's is something that we're learning about all the time, <laughs> so yeah. um, we're still investigating that. Um, Dr. Ruggles, we have a question for you from Crin in Colorado Springs, Colorado, beautiful place that Crin lives in. Crin uh, has a leggy two-year-old filly, sixteen hands at two years old. The horse mm-hmm. is also cowhawked. This is a, a tall girl. Um, cowhawked, and the interior of the back hooves, the inside, are shorter than the exterior. And she wants to know if there's any way to help to correct that or anything that can help um, help the horse with her cowhawkedness. Sure. Well, the... Um the uh, I think cowhawkedness is a is a word. If not, we'll, <laughs> I think we'll I just it. made we'll, it we'll up. We'll add it to the urban dictionary <laughs> or something. The um, um, cowhawked appearance. So essentially, what that means, if people aren't familiar with it, is is their their legs turn out. Um, so their their points of their hocks are kind of towards each other, if you will. Um, the uh, the that's the bad news that the horse is cowhawk. The good news is it's generally a, a very insignificant um, angular deformity. Uh, angular deformity means as you're looking at the leg from the back or the front, it's not straight all the way through. Um, there's also a rotation to this uh, deformity. Uh, but many, many horses that have been extremely successful have a degree of cowhawked appearance. Now, <clears throat> the other part of this equation is the um, is it is the condition of the feet, and they're adding to the cowhocked appearance because if the inside of the foot's lower, uh, they're going to tend to turn out. Uh, in fact, that's a mechanism by dropping the inside of the hoof with trimming. If you have a a foal that tends to turn in or have a what we call a fetlock varus, meaning turn or toed-in appearance to the feet, you can improve that by dropping the inside of the hoof with trimming. So, in fact. Um, if the uh, this is a the management is really with the farrier and um, essentially we have to increase improve the balance of the feet and I realize it's developed over time and it's it could be a management issue meaning sometimes uh, horses are trimmed that way or it could be the way the horse is growing uh, but by trying to balance the feet meaning get the outside and the inside rel- uh, uh, to, at the same level and that may take several trimmings uh, that should help quite a bit and the other way to deal with it more immediately is to um, shoe the horse a little full, meaning a little bit, it may not have shoes on now, but it might not be a bad idea for this period of time for maybe two or three um, uh, trimming periods to place shoes where the inside is a little bit um, uh, bigger, if you will. Um, It has a little bit of an inside extension. Uh, Be careful not to be too aggressive with that because you may create some additional problems, but that may help as well. Now, surgically, there's really not much to do as a two-year-old um, if a younger horse, um, especially up through about six months of age, we still have growth potential on the tibia, which is a bone right above the hock, um, that we can uh, address with um, uh, transficeal bridging, which is a technique to slow the growth on the inside, which would straighten the leg out. Um, and that can go, you can uh, do that up until yearling year as well, but it tends to work better when they're younger in the, in the tibia versus the front leg, the radius, um, to operate in the tibia when they're younger. But regardless, uh, it's a little too late now with a two-year-old. It's a deformity that the horse will probably do fine with, except may have some interference. So I would get um, your farrier to look long and hard at, uh, at the conformation of the foot and try to correct it. If they're not comfortable doing that, there's lots of specialty farriers around that can help get you started. Uh, and obviously your veterinarian can help as well. Okay. And we have another question for you, Dr. Ruggles, that's come in from our live audience. It's Tori in Michigan. 
And Tori has an eight-month-old that has a club foot, mm-hmm. and she wants to know if it's going to hurt the horse to start lightly working him, and is there anything she needs to do to make sure that she doesn't injure the horse because of the clubbed foot? So I would ask you to first explain a little bit about what a club foot is, sure. and then um, answer uh, Tori's question about giving this this kiddo some exercise. Sure. Um, um, the uh, A club foot is, if you're looking at the... F- leg from the side, if you look at the foot conformation, um, the, es- essentially they're more flexed in their coffin joint. And they'll, they'll generally have a very high heel um, and then they'll have a little bit of flare at their toe because the foot's trying to uh, uh, grow abnormally. Now, if you, ha- if you could think about, a, uh, if you could visualize what the bone would look like within the hoof, essentially there's, instead of a nice line, a straight line, essentially down the front of the bones, when it gets to the coffin joint, there's a flexion or a um, our angle, if you will, uh, to, uh, towards the back of the horse at the coffin joint, and that's where the club foot is. Now, some horses are similar in both front feet, so it may be hard to recognize that, but um, so they may have a mild deformity in the other foot as well and a more severe deformity in the one foot. Uh, the consequence of having a club foot or several um, from a um, um, from a physiologic aspect, from a, from a lameness aspect, by uh, they can actually cause poor foot quality and have some problems with um, abscessation at the toe and concussion of the toe region, so they get chronic bruising, and that's probably the most important thing uh, as far as lameness is concerned. The um, uh, the other thing is actually from a really a, a sale or marketing perspective is because it's recognized as a conformational fault that could be associated with lameness. Um, sometimes you may have a hard time marketing the horse later or, or selling the horse later, but that's a, you know, a, a different question. The um, uh, trimming can help mild deformities by dropping the, 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 toe, the heel sorry, and, and adding a slight toe extension, but if you're too aggressive with trimming or the horse's deformity is so significant, um, the trimming actually can lead to some lameness by causing concussion or bruising at the toe region and also putting some stress on the deep flexor tendon. So in horses that have not responded to trimming, are lame or have a moderate to severe deformity, and that can be judged by your veterinarian or, or a farrier who's familiar with this problem, then there's a very effective surgical technique uh, called an inferior check ligament desmotomy where we cut an accessory ligament. It's not important for function. The ligament that attaches the, the uh, deep flexor tendon to the cannon bone or the metacarpus, we cut that. It, it essentially functionally lengthens the tendon and muscle uh, the, the tendons and attachment of the muscle to the bone and allows us to then do more aggressive trimming um, and get the horse in a normal conformation. Now, <clears throat> this deformity is most, occurs most commonly in, in foals from four to eight or weanlings from four to eight months of age, uh, whereas the deformity of the fetlock joint, which is similar, usually occurs over, um, between 12 and uh, uh, 14 months of age. So, um, the the real important thing is if you deal with this as a young horse, especially if it needs a surgical procedure, your outcome is much better. The cosmetics are are generally great, uh, and it's usually the time to do it. So um, I would definitely have someone take a peek at this horse that has some familiarity with the disorder uh, to decide whether it needs a surgical procedure now or can respond to trimming. Um, but those are your uh, really how, how we deal with these guys. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Ruggles. And Dr. McKenzie, the next question I have for you is related to nutrition, and we got a ton of nutrition-related questions for these young horses. This one came in from Kathy in Thomasville, Georgia, and Kathy wants to know how important it is for an 18-month-old foal to have grain added to its um, to what it's eating. Uh, should good pasture and quality hay be enough, or does a young horse need grain as well? So, so, Kathy, I know what my limitations are. Nutrition is definitely one of them. So I reached out to um, one of my colleagues at Purina, Dr. Karen Davidson. She's an equine nutritionist there, and she's fabulous, and she helped um, answer this question for me. So she said that it depends tremendously on the quality and quantity of pasture. Um, an 18-month-old eating excellent quality green pasture would be um, in good shape from a calorie standpoint, as would be indicated by being in a good body condition score. So that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six out of nine on the school chart. And that, 
that would be adequate in total protein, although the amino acid balance um, may not be adequate to support optimal growth. They would be deficient in trace minerals for sure. So the same would be um, sort of excellent quality alfalfa hay, and there are grass hays that would provide adequate calories, but the amino acid balance of minerals would um, be too low. So if the hay or pasture is good quality and the youngsters are maintaining plenty adequate body condition where ribs are not visible but they're easy to feel, then a concentrated ration balance on such as Purina and Rich 42 would be a good option. There would be no benefit in this particular scenario for an unfortified grain such as oats or most fortified grain mixes are designed to be fed at a very minimum of four to five pounds per day for a growing horse at this stage. And so that feeding rate would probably provide too many additional calories, resulting in an overweight youngster. Um, so you definitely want to feed about two pounds per day, which would, of the enriched 32, which would provide the protein, vitamins, and minerals in similar amounts of the four to five pound ration of a fortified grain mix but only half the calories. So this lets um, you support growth and nutrition without accelerating um, the growth with the calories. Um, now, if the hay or pasture doesn't support them in good body condition, then um, she, she advised choosing a well-balanced fortified grain designed to support growth, such as um, Ultium Growth or, or Omoine 200, something along those lines. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. McKenzie, and thanks for, for reaching out and helping provide some of that information because there was so many questions or we received so many questions about nutrition. Um, our next question is for Dr. Ruggles, and I'm it came in from Gail in Canada, and Gail has a three-year-old gelding with developmental disease. She wants to know if there's hope for him. He has enlarged pasterns, but he runs and bucks around his field and is a fluid mover. Uh, do you have a response for Gail? Um, well, so far it sounds good. I mean, he's able to, um, obviously sounds like he moves pretty well. That The um, uh, developmental disease is a very broad category of, um, <clears throat> of problems, and it can stretch from something as, as Gail uh, is uh, experiencing with this gelding up to uh, problems in the cervical spine causing um, uh, compression or wobbler syndrome. So um, not only is location variable, but the degree of problem is, is variable severity. <clears throat> so um, just just because there's enlargement of the pasterns, um, what really matter doesn't really doesn't really mean that we're going to have problems long term as far as lameness goes, um, um, or any other condition. the the uh, The issue becomes whether or not the disease involves the articular growth plate or ca has caused problems within the joint or not. Or not. So if, if we have some periarticular, which means around the joint rather than articular disease, then you may be faced just with a cosmetic um, blemish. And if we have uh, disorder within the joint, such as um, lucency or cyst formation, uh, new bone formation, or arthritic conditions, uh, loss of cartilage, collapse of joint space, things like that, then the condition would be much more serious long-term as far as um, performance, not that there aren't some ways to deal with it. So I think the real key to answer your question, and I'm not trying to um, be vague, um, but really is to radiograph um, the pasterns and to see whether what, what the, um, the physical condition actually is. Um, is it, is it uh, uh, soft tissue swelling, uh, which the joint, essentially the bones and joints will look normal? Uh, is it periarticular, meaning around the joint? In that circumstance, then uh, it's likely to, uh, if it doesn't progress, it's most likely to be a cosmetic blemish or is an articular disease. And if it is articular disease, then there, there may be some ways to deal with it um, uh, early um, or it, it may be something watch and see and see how severe it becomes. Okay. Thank you. And so our next question is for Dr. Ruggles. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. McKenzie if she has a response also to this one. It's from Laura in Western Washington, and Laura raises reining and roping paint horses in the Northwest, and she has quite a bit of cold, wet weather for nine months of the year and only three months of sun and, and warm temperatures. 
she feels like when her horses go to training as two-year-olds, they're smaller than the horses that are raised in Texas and maybe not as mature. She's wondering if climate could impact the growth of her horses um, and if there's anything she can do to help them. She notes that she blankets them uh, when the weather is bad. She gets hay hauled over from uh, the eastern side of Washington. I'm originally from Washington, and I'll, I'll say that there's some good hay in eastern Washington. Um, and she also feeds them grain. And her horses are raised outside. They sure. get at least 12 hours of turnout. So, Dr. Ruggles, is there a reason that her horses are smaller than the horses in Texas? Or is it something um, that maybe she's just perceiving? Everything's bigger in Texas, so I think you <laughs> should sell somewhere else maybe might be the, uh, the answer. But, um, you know, there's two likely things. One, one could be your genetic pool, right? You could have a, um, you know, you know and, and I know rainers are, most of them are related in some way, especially with artificial breeding. But there could be that component. Now, if they're similar enough genetically, um, it's probably, and then it's more likely a nu- nutritional as, um, um, or management problem. I don't want to call it a problem because I'm not sure you have a problem. Um, you know, having horses that are light and maybe not as um, uh, sort of uh, finished, if you will, um, uh, using a, a kind of a beef term, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I have a good friend who raises horses in um, in. Um, Central Ohio under kind of more rugged conditions than we're used to in Central Kentucky. The horses are out most of the time. Uh, they are uh, appropriately fed but not overfed. Um, they are lighter than average, and it sounds like a bad story, except that his incidence of osteochondrosis or articular bone fragments is very low. So you're, you may, in fact, be, um, uh, be really producing a good product. Now, I understand that uh, when, when buyers are looking at the horse, are looking for a certain, uh, maybe a certain thing that you're not providing. So maybe one answer is to potentially move those horses earlier uh, to the different environment where they can put on some more weight if that's uh, really how you want them to look. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're um, to take a hard look at this, you might want to have your, um, your pasture evaluated, um, do, a, do a complete evaluation of your feeding program, make sure you have good trace mineral, um, trace minimal, minerals available, excuse me, uh, at all times and everything's well balanced. And if you're doing all that, um, you know, maybe it's just a reflection of, of, the, uh, of the more difficult conditions in the northwest versus the, the south of the country. But um, if you have a good product, um, I, I don't know that I'd worry about it too much. Okay. And Dr. McKenzie, do you have anything to add to what Dr. Ruggles has said? Yeah, I think I would echo what Dr. Ruggles said. You probably don't, don't have um, an issue and might actually be averting some, some problems with overweight horses. So, um, have, maintaining a really good body conditioning score is, is one of the ways that you can minimize disease in horses. So um, having a good nutritional analysis done by, by your veterinarian or a nutritionist to critically analyze what the horse is eating, what the horse looks like, doing the appropriate body conditioning scoring, and, and if they are light, then you know, identifying the factors about why why they are, and it probably is nutritional. But if they're not, if they're in good body conditioning score, you know, around a six or a seven, then you know, again, I would I would say you're doing you're doing things right. So probably no need to to go looking for things. But also, everything is bigger in Texas as a native Texan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You can agree. <laughs> Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, our next question uh, is for Dr. McKenzie. It's from Barb in Georgia. And Barb wants to know why weanlings tend to get a pet pop belly. She deworms her horses on a regular basis and feeds a high-quality feed, um, but she's noticed that her babies get these big bellies. And I think we've all seen those babies with the bellies. It's not quite as cute as a puppy belly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, Barb, I would say um, this is a, a two-pronged approach. It's probably um, nutritional with the hay, but also, most importantly, um, a parasite issue. It could be a parasite issue. So, um, I would recommend having some sequels done um, to make sure that the deworming compounds that are being administered to to these foals are, are adequately working. We know that there's a lot of anthelmintic resistance out there to the compounds that we're giving them. So we don't want to um, 
roll the dice with our foals because of the major parasite that affects foals is ascarids or roundworms. And those can be can can present a significant issue in terms of colic, as we've already um, discussed. So you you definitely want to make sure that that pot-bellied appearance isn't coming from from parasite burden. And once you've identified that it isn't parasite burden and you're managing um, the ascarids within that foal, the next thing is to consider um, um, the nutritional component. So in an otherwise healthy weanling on an effective deworming program, pot bellies are most often um, due to the hay. So the hindgut of the horse, um, which is where hay is primarily digested, is not fully functional usually at this age, so the hay isn't digested as effectively as in more mature horses. So you can somewhat control the belly by controlling hay intake to about um, um, a pound and a half of hay per um, 100 pounds of body weight. So that's nine pounds of hay for about a 600-pound weanling and, and feeding the best quality of hay that you can. So grass hay such as Timothy or orchard grass, um, Bermuda grass, tend to cause bigger bellies than alfalfa um, as long as they just have big bellies and don't have excessive fat cover over their ribs. Again, going back to that importance of the body conditioning score, then this is really nothing to be concerned about. It just doesn't look like what we want. The concern is when someone thinks um, this big belly means they're too fat and reduces the amount of good quality feed but still feed the same amount or free choice amounts of hay. This can significantly um, be an important um, nutrition needed for proper growth, but won't do much to help with the belly. Um, for weanlings and yearlings that are being shown are going to a sale where it is necessary to control, you know, the size of their bellies to improve their look, then restricting the hay, feeding um, alfalfa hay or feeding a com- complete feed that has um, quality hay built in the formula, um, would be would be helpful. Um, um, so, otherwise, just feed good quality hay um, to these youngsters. Um, needed to, need to keep them growing properly and in a moderate body condition. Um, so, really, just looking at them from a nutritional standpoint and making sure that most importantly they're not loaded with ascarids or those okay. nasty roundworms. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. McKenzie. And I just want to let everyone know that we're down to only about seven minutes left. If you have any last-minute questions that you really want us to get to, uh, send those in now. We have a lots left to cover, um, and we won't get to everything that we've received, but we're going to try to <laughs> scoot through some of these um, before we're done for the evening. I always feel like there's so much more to cover, um, but an hour goes by quickly. Uh, so our next question has come in from Terry in California. And Dr. Ruggles, I'm going to give this to you. This is from our live audience. And Terry's out there listening and has a six-month-old quarter horse filly that toes out a little bit in the front. Uh, the filly is trimmed regularly. Uh, she wants to know if there's anything that she should be worried about at this time. Uh, no. I think uh, – I haven't seen her horse. That's a pretty, pretty <laughs> blunt answer. But um, to- towing out at this age is, is, is actually acceptable and normal. So, you know, everything's relative, right? So if you have a dramatic rotation or towing out and, and if, the, if the knees are uh, close or calf knee, um, that could be a problem if it's dramatic. But this one, at least from the description, doesn't sound that bad. And, and remember, you're looking, um, you know, ideally we, we want to have a, a good confirmation when the horse is, is mature rather than worrying about it at six months. So a foal that's six months of age that is straight is likely to become a little bit bow-legged um, as it matures, especially uh, into its teen years. So uh, being a little bit... Um, uh, calf need or, or rotate or rotated out at this point is probably a good a good thing. The um, you know it's good that she's having regular uh, farrier care. It's really really important. It's you know you want to be careful not just to um, uh, correct uh, or put um, stress on the on the hooves or the feet uh, to try to make something look better that doesn't it doesn't really have to be corrected. So uh, it'd be a good idea for her uh, for Terry to uh, you know have have her veterinarian check. Um, 
just check this foal and um, or or um, you know or you know or someone that's very familiar with the breed and what they're going to do. And, and at this age, at six months, you may want to check them every two months and just have someone do a confirmation evaluation. It's not very expensive. It's worthwhile. In younger foals, we we tend to do them uh, more frequently every two to four weeks, depending on the uh, uh, what we find um, because they are like plastic. They change a lot. But at, from what description here, I wouldn't be too worried um, with that. Def- with that uh, deformity, it's better than the opposite. And uh, providing that the horse has a good farrier care, she's probably going to be fine. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have another question for you, Dr. Ruggles, from Haley in Douglas, Wyoming. And Haley has several weanlings, seven to eight months old. They're quarter horses, and they've started to show uh, what she's perceiving as contraction or a noticeable tightening in the appearance of their hind fetlocks. Sure. Um, is this common and what could be causing this? Yeah, so it sounds like they're getting upright in their hind fetlocks. And in, in the, um, uh, it's not normal. Um, uh, there's, um, doesn't mean it's significantly pathologic, but I wouldn't call it normal. Um, in the fact that you have more than, more than one, um, um, going through this period, I would look at the management, um, and potentially we're having, um, uh, some trouble with, um, a balanced diet, uh, especially with trace minerals as, um, you know, um, uh, Dr. McKenzie has brought up and, and the value of having, um, uh, you know, a careful exact, uh, examination of your uh, feeding protocol uh, makes a big difference here. Some of the specific things to watch for uh, when horses get upright in their hind fetlocks, uh, believe it or not, are stifle problems um, because they'll, they'll may have some soreness in their stifles and they're not actually loading their fetlock normally. So if, if uh, careful examination should be done to check whether there's any uh, filling or joint swelling like we talked about earlier in the fetlocks within the stifles, if that's the case, uh, the horses should be evaluated radiographically to, to see whether there's any, because they're right at the age of starting osteochondrosis in the stifles. Um, if uh, everything's cool, then I would try to do some restricted exercise um, um, and uh, reduce, uh, probably reduce their uh, their growth rate, but but pro- importantly, provide them with good balanced diet um, and um, you know manage them that way. Um, but but uh, there's also some trimming that might be able to be done, but you'd have to see the horse really before you feel comfortable recommending that. Okay, and Dr. Ruggles, you just mentioned OCD, so I'm going to give you probably the biggest question of the night in the last two minutes of of our uh, show and. It is from Betty in North Carolina, and Betty wants to know what the latest thinking is on the causes and prevention of OCD in young warm blood horses. Do you have any thoughts on that? So, so, so this is a two-hour show. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, I have lots of thoughts on it. Um, OCD is a short for osteochondrosis um, um, and uh, desiccans, which is a specific form of the OCD, but it's really OC is the term we really use scientifically, although it's OCD is in common parlance. But regardless, um, it's a failure of the cartilage to form normal bone, and it can occur at the growth plates, at the long bones, which is what kind of everyone's familiar with, and they see an X-ray and they see that line sort of at the just above the knee or just below the stifle or just above the ankle. The other spot it occurs is at the articular growth plate, meaning within the joint itself. Um, that's an area where cartilage undergrows uh, mineralization or endochondral <coughs> ossification. So, um, in um, in all breeds, it's a multifactorial disease, and what that means is that there's lots of causes. So we know we can cause it with low copper or high energy diets, right? Um, What we don't know is all the ways to prevent it. Now, there's certainly a genetic predisposition, um, and but it's not strictly genetic. Um, So if you had a mare that always had offspring with osteochondrosis, then it, it really depends on how severe the problem is, whether you want to breed her again. It's a disorder that's handled uh, actually fairly easily, surgically generally, but not always. Now, from a purist aspect, you might argue, well, you shouldn't breed any horse with osteochondrosis. However, that's probably not going to eliminate the problem completely, and it's a, a solvable problem for an individual. So that, that logic does not always apply, although some of the warm bloods have done a great job to reduce it. So um, that's a, um, a two-minute answer to a two-hour question. Um, so it's nutritional, it's environmental, um, it's management, and it's genetic. So there's no one, one way to solve it. Yeah, and Betty's question was specifically about warm bloods, but are other breeds susceptible to it as well? Yeah, every every breed 
and every every place that uh, cartilage undergoes uh, mineralization is susceptible. So the, the 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 limbs as well as the spine are places you can get it. Now we don't tend to see it in the head or um, there, but uh, it has probably something to do with loading the limbs too, or loading the cartilage. So trauma has something to do with it. But cocks and stifles, fetlocks, most common spot. Carpus and tarsus. Uh, tarsus is, is oh, sorry, hocks are common, but tar- carpus, meaning the knee, is not very common, I would say. Uh, okay. Well, thank you for that succinct answer to a big problem uh, that we run into with our young horses. And with that, uh, it is 6.01. We are out of time, unfortunately, tonight. Um, but we got to cover a lot of good stuff. I, I want to tell everyone Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for signing up ahead of time and for the questions that you sent in live tonight. I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Ruggles and Dr. McKenzie, who did a great job. Thank you, both of you, for joining us tonight. Very welcome. Yeah, especially coming up to the holidays, Dr. McKenzie. Thank you for for making some time for us. We appreciate it. No problem. And, And so... I also want to thank our sponsor who brought this event to us for free, and that's Merck Animal Health, um, and they made this available to everyone to listen in tonight. If you'd like to listen to the audio again, we will be archiving it, as always, on on the site. Uh, it'll be on there tomorrow, and it'll be under the podcasts in your top nav on on the site. Also, we have thousands of articles and resources about all topics, but lots of good stuff about young horses as well. So if you didn't hear answers to your questions, uh, please get on thehorse.com and do a search. Uh, You might find some videos as well to help you better care for your young horses. Thank uh, Thank you again, everyone. Happy holidays, and we'll see you guys again in January for our Foley and Neonate Ask the Vet Live.